Our scripture reading this morning is in the book of Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 11. I'll be reading Isaiah 11 and 12. And I have a sound effect for every chapter that is read. So again, Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the fruit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bears shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in any my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnants that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He shall raise a signal for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel, and gather dispersed of Judah. From the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and with and will wave his hand over the river with its scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria from the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt you will say in that day i will give thanks to you o lord for though you were angry with me your anger turned away that you might comfort me Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Amen. Over the past few years, my friend Colin Hewitt has asked me to attend the Memorial Day Parade in Winthrop. 
And one of my responsibilities at the parade has been to read a poem written by a soldier whose name was John McRae called In Flanders Fields. It's a poem written from the perspective of a soldier who has been killed in battle, and he is encouraging, as he writes his poem, encouraging the rest of the troops that remain to continue to fight and win victory against the enemy. Flanders fields are in Belgium, and there were many uh, battles fought in these fields uh, in World War I between the Germans and the Allies. It is estimated that 700,000 soldiers and civilians uh, lost their lives in Flanders Fields in the second half of the year 1917. I brought a painting with me today by the British artist Paul Nash of Flanders Fields. And as you look at the picture, you can see it's a picture of gloom and hopelessness. The trees in the fields are just stumps. There are bomb craters everywhere. Barbed wire and broken concrete covers the ground. Smoke is rising up. And the few soldiers that are in the picture are looking for the enemy, but mostly they are honestly just trying to survive in this bleak place of death and hopelessness. When we read Isaiah chapter 11 and 12, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah are also in a hopeless place. Much of the territory in the northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken by the Assyrian army. And Judah is the next place on the map for Assyria to advance. Once they have finished taking Israel, they're coming for Judah next. And so Isaiah has been faithful to tell the people of Judah the reason for their disaster is their nation's sin. But the people have not listened. They have not turned away from their sin in repentance. And so what message does Isaiah have for the people at this time? Surprisingly, it is not a message of gloom and of hopelessness. It's a message instead of brilliant hope for the people of God. It's true, Judah in the future was going to be sent into exile by the Assyrians and later by the Babylonians. Judah was going to be disciplined for her many sins. But over the long term, over many years, Judah's future was full of astonishing hope. The message of God's prophet Isaiah was that a life of faith is always for God's people a life of hope. What was Judah's hope in this bleak time in our country's history? And what is our Christian hope today? Let's see our hope from Isaiah 11 and 12 this morning. First of all, you have hope of a coming king. We saw last week that King Ahaz of Judah was a complete disaster. He did not trust in God to save Judah. He trusted in the nation of Assyria and in his own wisdom to save the nation. But there was no future in Ahaz's plan to save, to, rather to trust in the nation of Assyria. 
Yes, Assyria would come and they would defeat the nations of both Syria and Israel that were coming against Judah. But eventually Assyria, in the days of King Hezekiah, would surround the capital city of Jerusalem and uh, they wanted to destroy Judah as well. You see, Assyria was a very hungry wolf. They were not just hungry for Syria and for Israel. They were also hungry for the nation of Judah. Judah then would be nothing but a stump once they were taken over by these countries, according to uh, Isaiah's words in verse 1 of chapter 11. And so Judah would be like one of those stumps that was left in Flanders' fields. But there was still hope for Judah at this time. The roots of that stump would remain. And from those roots would grow fresh signs of life. Who is the branch of verse 1 who would bear fruit? He is a shoot from the stump of Jesse, King David's father. God had made a great promise to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Let's read that promise together. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus would be the fulfillment of his prophecy to uh, Jesse, and Jesus would be the fulfillment of this prophecy to David himself. Jesus would be God's eternal king. Just when it looked like David's line was about to be finished, Jesus would come as a fresh shoot. And King Jesus would be completely different from King Ahaz. Jesus would be anointed with the Holy Spirit, as we see in verse 2. You see, Israel's kings, they were not crowned at a coronation. They were not given a golden crown. Instead, poured out upon them was oil as a sign that the Holy Spirit had now been poured out on them so that they might rescue and rule God's people well. King Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism when the Spirit came to rest on him in the form of a dove. Jesus then would not depend on himself like King Ahaz did. In every area of his life, Jesus would depend upon the Holy Spirit and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, what gifts would Jesus bring as king because he was indeed filled with the Spirit? Verses 2 to 5 say that Jesus would have the gifts of wisdom, power, reverence for God, faithfulness, and righteousness. In short, Jesus would be the perfect king. He would come to rule over his people, Judah. And Jesus would come not just as Judah's king, he would also come as a warrior who would fight for Judah. 
Some of you are familiar with the armor of God as it is described in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6. One piece of the warrior's armor sounds very familiar to us. It's, it's simply a belt. In Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul tells Christians that we are told to wear the belt of truth. When a Roman soldier tucked his robe into his belt, he was then ready to run. He was ready to fight. And we need to fight against our enemy, Satan, with the belt of truth today. In Isaiah 11, in verse 5, we see that King Jesus also would wear a belt when he came to fight. He wore the belt of righteousness and faithfulness. Jesus fights against evil then with righteousness and faithfulness. And Jesus also fights with his words, according to verse 4. We read that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Jesus' words of judgment will bring down both the arrogant Assyrians, as well as the people of Judah, who have not submitted to God. God's word, Jesus' word then, is powerful. How powerful? Verse 11 says that in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of the people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Alam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. For a second time then, God will bring his chosen people into the promised land. When was the first time that God brought his people to the promised land? It was at the Exodus, when God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt to their own land, to their own place where they could worship God. And so, here in Isaiah, God is promising now a second exodus, a second time when the people of God will exit the nations and be brought into the promised land. They would come out of exile from Assyria and eventually from Babylon. But God would bring his people back home to Israel despite their many sins. Their king was going to help them. The king would save them. Let me ask you today, do you need to be saved yourself from a powerful enemy today? Maybe you need to be saved from sickness. Or maybe there's anxiety that eats away at your life that you need to be saved from. Or maybe you're battling an addiction today that is hard for you to fight against. Or maybe you are battling against anger and bitterness that is destroying your soul. Where will your salvation come from? Every Disney movie these days tells you to look within yourself when you need to be saved. You can be your own hero. You can be your own savior. But who does the Bible say will save you? Look again at Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 2. Behold, 
God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Who will save you? Is it you who will save you? No, it is God who will save you. The battle is the Lord's. It is not yours. And when God saves you, he will get the glory for that salvation. So if you need to be saved from an enemy today, pray. Ask God to save you. Don't rely on yourself. Trust in him as he fights on your behalf. After all, God himself is salvation. That's who he is. The name of Jesus means the Lord saves. When you need a savior, don't look to yourself. Look to King Jesus. Salvation is who he is. And so you need to remember that your king has come and your king is coming again to save you. The best for us is yet to come. You have then hope of a coming king. You also have hope of a curse that is going to be reversed. What kind of kingdom would Jesus bring with him? It would be a kingdom that would restore and secure the harmony of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, when they came into this world, they destroyed paradise. All of humanity fell into sin as a result of their sin. Paradise was lost because of sin. But with the coming of King Jesus, paradise will be restored. We saw last week in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 that Jesus would be called the Prince of Peace. And in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6, we see that Jesus will bring peace not just between people, but between all of creation. Even animals will live at peace with one another. We read in verse 6 of chapter 11, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Animals would once again become herbivores. They would eat only vegetables and plants. They would not be carnivores anymore, just like they were in the Garden of Eden. Jesus then, when he comes, will come as the new Adam. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, God had commanded that the first Adam would be fruitful, fill the earth and subdue it, and he would rule over the animals. Jesus the king is now putting that mandate to rule over the animals back on track. Jesus will reverse the curse of sin that was brought about by Adam's sin. Jesus would subdue and rule over creation like Adam was supposed to. And Jesus would remove the curse of sin. 
When I moved to the state of Maine in 2001, there was a lot of talk around here about reversing the curse. The curse, of course, was on our beloved Red Sox. The Red Sox had not won a World Series in over 80 years by the time I got to Maine. But since I have lived in Maine, that curse has been reversed. The Red Sox have won four World Series in this century. Not only that, but the Celtics were NBA champions in 2008. The Bruins won the Stanley Cup in 2011. And how many Super Bowls have the Patriots won? Six. They have won since I have been in Maine. To sum up, Boston has been in a golden age for their sports teams ever since I moved to Maine. The curse has been reversed. Now, some of you might call Boston sports success a coincidence with the fact that I, I moved back to New England at the time when they enjoyed all of this success. But I say, coincidence? I think not. My, my arrival here has led to the reversal of the curse for all of Boston sports teams. And so you are welcome, Boston sports fans. In a far more important way, the arrival of King Jesus on the earth has led to a complete reversal of the curse of sin on humanity. The result of that curse that was upon us is found um, in Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 1. We read in that verse that in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Now, because of our sin, God has been angry with human beings. Our sin enrages our good and merciful God and separates us from him. That is bad news. When the almighty God is angry with you, you are in serious trouble. But what is the good news? What is the news of hope in Isaiah 11 and 12? Verse 1 says that God's anger has been turned away from his people. The angry God has instead become your savior. Is that good news? That is amazing news that we celebrate today. The curse has been reversed. How did that happen? We saw how in Isaiah chapter 6. When an angel, a seraphim, brought a flaming burning coal from the altar of sacrifice, brought that coal to Isaiah, touched Isaiah, and as a result, Isaiah was forgiven for his sin. Once that coal touched Isaiah, the anger of God, the fiery wrath of God, burned itself out on the body of a substitutionary sacrifice. The animal of sacrifice took away all of God's anger toward us. Some of you here today feel God's anger upon you and your life. 
You know that your sin displeases him. You know that you are living in rebellion against him in some way. And so you are trying to do all kinds of good deeds to please God with your good works. But you know that it's not enough. You know that all of your good deeds could never please the perfect holy God. So how can God's anger then, how can it turn from you? It can turn away from you at the cross. At the cross, God's anger and God's judgment fell upon Jesus for your sin. And when you trust that Jesus died for your sins, you can sing with God's, word, with God's people the wonderful words in Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. God, in the person of Jesus, has become the sacrifice for sin that has turned God's anger away from you. God's anger against sin was all poured out on Jesus. And all that is left for us now who trust in Jesus, according to Isaiah 12, 1, is comfort. We have the comfort of knowing that God loves us God has forgiven us. The curse has been reversed. Is that true for you today? Has the curse of sin been reversed? Do you know that judgment is past for you? Do you know that God's judgment on your sin has fallen on Jesus instead? It has for those who have come to Christ in both repentance and faith. So secure is the peace that Jesus wins for his people that even a child, according to chapter 11 and verse 8, can exercise the rule that was originally given to Adam and Eve. And the fight between humans and the serpent that was found, that began in Eden, is now going to be over according to verse 8 of chapter 11. The snake has been and will be defeated. There is no danger now for humans from Satan. Children, according to Isaiah 11 and verse 8, can now play near cobras and adders. The snake has been crushed. To show us that the curse upon Christians has been reversed. Isaiah looks back not only to the past of Eden. He also looks forward by means of this picture that I brought with me today. Isaiah looks forward as one who looks through a telescope. Now, what does a telescope do? It brings objects that are very far away from us near to us. So when you look through a telescope, you can see planets and stars that are very far away, but they are brought near to us through means of a telescope. And so Isaiah, he is not bringing the planets or the stars near to us. He is instead bringing near to our eyes historical future events. He is showing us what God is going to do in the future. 
And so Isaiah brings in Isaiah 11 and 12, he brings near to us the second exodus to Judah when God's people will return to Israel on a highway as from Assyria, according to Isaiah 11 and verse 16. And when the people of God return, we read that there will be no more jealousy or fighting between the the two kingdoms of Israel, between the northern kingdom of Ephraim and the southern kingdom of Judah, according to Isaiah 11 and verse 13. All of that will be past. Instead, there will be nothing but peace between all of God's people in Israel. And then Isaiah, through his telescope, he brings near to us the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who in the power of the Holy Spirit will bring salvation and reverse the curse. And finally, Isaiah even brings near to the vision of his people, not just the coming of King Jesus the first time, but the coming of King Jesus the second time as well. Isaiah can see a time when paradise lost will become paradise restored. He can see a time when King Jesus will return to earth to rule over all things. Isaiah can see the Garden of Eden again. He can see a day when sin and its effects will have been wiped out completely. Isaiah can see heaven. Aren't you glad today that Isaiah saw heaven and he brought it near to us in his prophecy? Some of you here today are honestly struggling to see heaven. You wonder if if it's really true. Is it really coming? Is there such a place that God will bring to his people? You look around you and you see sin and you see brokenness. And you wonder, is God really going to bring heaven to his people? If that is the case for you today, I want you to look. Really look at what Isaiah says to his people here in Isaiah 11 and 12. Don't lose your faith. Don't lose your hope. We will live in the Garden of Eden again. The curse is most definitely going to be reversed. You have hope then of the curse being reversed. Finally, you have hope of a cosmic joy and peace. Isaiah was a prophet to God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah, so it makes sense that Isaiah would bring hope both to the people of Judah and to their relatives in the northern kingdom of Israel. But hope in Isaiah's uh, vision, in his telescope, is not limited to either Judah or to Israel. There was hope for the entire cosmos because of his message. There was hope for the whole world in Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah 11 and verse 10, The prophet says that in that day, the root of Jesse, King Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The word signal in this verse can also mean a flag. 
So people from every nation then are going to come to King Jesus and rally around him much as one would come to a flag. All the nations that are listed in verse 11, they will all come to King Jesus. It's true that many of the people who rally around the flag of Jesus will come from the exiled of Israel. The Jews will come back to Israel and rally around Christ. But it will not just be Jews who rally around King Jesus in the future, Isaiah is saying. Let's look at the song of joy that is sung in Isaiah chapter 12. The second half of Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 2 says this, For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. These words are a direct quote from Exodus chapter 15 and verse 2. The first Exodus. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt into Israel, Miriam led them in song, a song of victory, a song of salvation. God has saved us. And so the second exodus now is going to lead to a, a new song of victory, a new song of salvation for God's people. And what will God's people do in that day when King Jesus comes? They will worship God. In verse 4, the people sing, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Now, who are we making God's great deeds of salvation? Who are we making those deeds known among? The peoples, according to verse 4. All the peoples of the earth. We see this repeated in verse 5. Let this be made known in all the earth. When God's people see the salvation of God in Jesus Christ, what do they do? They sing. They sing with joy for what God has done for them. They burst into song with joy. Some of you here today perhaps are wondering if, if joy is possible in this world. Well, what do we know here? The whole reason why God created a people for himself was that they might experience joy. God wants all of us as his children to be a joyful people who sing God's praises. And as we sing of his praises, we go... We go to all the peoples, to the people in our neighborhoods, but also to the peoples of all the world, to the people of Nigeria, for example. We go with the good news of Christ's salvation. So what do we learn from this song of joy in Isaiah chapter 12? We learn that worship is mission and mission is worship. If your worship does not lead you to telling other people about Jesus, you are not really worshiping. When you truly worship, you will sing the words of verse 6. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. 
Our worship of King Jesus will lead us to joyfully sharing the good news about our great Jesus to other people and to other nations. My first job was as a a busboy in a restaurant at a country club. And since it was a, a country club, you had a lot of wealthy people who were part of that club who played golf, so you can imagine it was quite a nice place, which it was. And so many people wanted to host their wedding receptions at our country club. And one of the most joyful moments in those wedding celebrations for the staff was when the waitresses and waiters would pop the corks on the champagne bottles as they prepared for the toast to be given to the bride and the groom. When the corks were popped, the champagne would burst out of the bottle and it would flow down the waiters and waitresses' arms. The bottle could no longer contain the joyful drink. It had to be let loose. When we as Christians think about evangelism or mission, we often feel two things inside us. We feel guilt and we feel fear. We feel guilty that we do not share the gospel enough with others. And we feel afraid of what will they think of me if I talk to them about Jesus. So church, here is my advice to you when you think about evangelism and mission. Stop thinking so much about evangelism. Start thinking more about Jesus. When you think about Jesus, what happens inside you? When you think about Jesus, the cork gets popped, unpopped. And instead, everything about Jesus that is good and beautiful, it comes rushing out of you. You rejoice when you think about Jesus. And so my advice to you is to let that cork get popped. Let all of the champagne fizz out of you in excitement about what Jesus has done for you. You must tell someone about Jesus when you think about him and how great he is. We Christians are not just saved by faith. We Christians live by faith. And if you are walking by faith in Jesus Christ this morning, you are living a life of hope. You have hope because King Jesus has come to be God with us. You have hope because King Jesus is coming back to take you, to be with him. He has brought with him forgiveness and salvation. And he is bringing to you a place where the curse will be reversed. You have hope today then because the curse of sin and the serpent has been reversed. And you have hope because you are full of joy. Because the peace that Jesus has made between you and God. And between you and the people of other nations. Let's live then with faith, not fear. Let's live with hope, not despair. Let's live with trust in God and not in people. Let's pray together. God, how grateful we are that we are a people of hope. 
Thank you for the hope that you have brought with us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the King who has come, and he is the King who is coming. Thank you as well that Jesus has reversed the curse upon us. And we thank you also, Lord, that you are the King who has come to bring us joy and peace. May we as your people be a people of hope. Free us from our despair. May we trust in you, knowing that the future is bright indeed. In your name we pray. Amen.